we're all affected by these stereotypes of what aging is going to look like or does look like. There's a space we're not talking about in this society, and it's the space between denial and ageism. Hi, everyone. This is Peter Caldas again, the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to another episode of Bylines. On today's episode, we're speaking with Katie Butler, who is an award-winning journalist who has written two groundbreaking books on the end of life, one called Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, and the second is The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. She also advocates for better doctor and patient communication and medical reform. Uh, Katie is a lay ordained Buddhist who lives in Northern California and worked for years as a staff reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Today, we're talking to Katie about why her books on end of life and caregiving hit such a nerve and how ageism might affect reporting. Katie, welcome to Bylines. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm really happy and excited to be here. So let's start with why you wrote these books. Obviously, the topic is extraordinarily awkward for some, but an important one to discuss. Well, I think it started out because I was living a sort of happy, childless, career-oriented life in Northern California with my parents on the East Coast. And when my dad was 79, he had a devastating stroke, really devastating. And my parents had been very, very healthy elders until then. And I became very involved again in their lives. There was just an upwelling of love and gratitude for my parents, especially my dad. And so I started being one of those members of what I call the rollerboard generation, the baby boomers who are looking after aging parents and are flipping back and forth across the country, or at least were before the COVID shutdown. And I got to see from the baby kind of like the bug's eye level, what the American medical system looked like as it interacted with aging and severe disability, chronic illness. And frankly, in some ways, I was horrified by all the extremely expensive, extending life treatments that my dad was offered that were very technological and then the extreme limitation on things like speech therapy or physical therapy that actually would have improved his quality of life. And I was already a journalist, obviously, and I became some combination of heartbroken and outraged and really couldn't stop until I understood what was going on in American healthcare and how that intersects with diseases and conditions that are not curable, that are not fixable. Um, so I just got very inspired. I, my dad's journey from severe disability to death lasted six and a half years. My mother was an absolutely exhausted family caregiver. And the upshot was I ended up writing a New York Times magazine piece about this that went viral. And instead of regarding myself as some kind of strange outlier who didn't like what was going on, I found this enormous resonance in the American public for just speaking these issues that nobody was speaking about. And 
that ended up being the first book, which is really a memoir of caregiving, my mother's caregiving and mine, as well as an exploration of how, in my mind, American medicine really veered off course and became so technological and so anti-human, so so organized toward the technological and away from humane person-to-person contact. And then, you know, I'm 71 myself now, so I had to write the second book, which is called The Art of Dying Well, because I realized I'm going to be tracking my own path through decline, and I need to, I need a book for me and the other baby boomers on how we can navigate this as well as we possibly can. So that's sort of how the books came to be. I mean, I was already a journalist and already an investigative reporter and already a critical thinker, and that all just came to bear and sort of united with the the love I had for my parents and the love I had for writing and ended up being, in a way, kind of a new career path. I mean, my first book was published when I was 64, so I like to joke that it was overnight success at 64. So, yeah, and then I became something of an activist. So I guess this is what a lot of people find, that there are these transitions happening in these later stages of life. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're contributing to... Um, the literature on these issues, because oftentimes, like I said, we really don't talk about these sorts of things. And we're uh, taken aback when something like what you described happens to us personally. So I'm thinking that would probably one of the main reasons why your books resonated so deeply with the American public. But I'm wondering now, you know, in light of the pandemic, where we're all forced to understand what it means to be a family caregiver. Um, How do you think the reception would be to these books now? I don't think it would be as good right now. And I'll tell you why. I think people are more terrified of dying than they have before because suddenly we have this highly infectious disease that is creating the possibility of sudden death for large swaths of the population. I mean, not only the people over 80 and 90, but anybody who is obese or who has um, severe lung problems or diabetes or any kind of heart problem. So there's this looming quality of the specter of death. And I think maybe in some ways it's made the society more afraid of dying and less wanting to talk about it and wanting to talk more about vaccines and miracle cures and what we can do about this, which is all fine and good, but it's almost eclipsing the kind of conversation that I was hoping, well, that I did succeed in starting, which is, can we also befriend our aging? Can we befriend our decline? I think one of the reasons the books resonated is because There's a space we're not talking about in this society, and it's the space between denial and ageism. And the denial is, let's say, an AARP magazine that has story after story of healthy longevity and a marathon runner at the age of 80, but has extremely little coverage of the burden of caregiving, the struggles of caregiving how our medical system is not interfacing in, you know, outside some incredible programs like the PACE program, but that outside programs like that, 
the support for people who want to remain at home, say, but they now have a degree of disability, the poverty of our social support for aging. So on the one hand, you have the denial, which is like, oh, you know, aging is a whole new thing now. And as long as you keep exercising, you can really stave off decline, which is, of course, true. But then there are always going to be those people who either out of poverty or prior conditions are not going to have those healthy aging and they are going to need the supportive community and neighbors and government programs. And there's been, it was almost like I felt there was a blank space for describing what my father's last six years were like. And so there's, you see what I'm saying? We have ageism on the one hand where we think all old people are, you know, quote, our seniors, which is a phrase I truly hate. Um, and on the other hand, we have this, um, we have this denial about the struggles of later life. And yeah, and so many open. people, right. Yeah. Right, right. And so many people rely on, you, you mentioned that blank space. So many people rely on their faith to guide them through that, that, that blank space. I'm wondering, as a, as a lay ordained Buddhist, how does, how does your practice affect how you think about these issues? Well, uh, you know, my, my summary of Buddhism is, excuse me, it's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a one-line summary, which is that the more we fail to accept reality in the here and now today, the more painful our lives become. And and to me, that's that's pretty much it. Can we look at what is really going on today in our life and respond to it appropriately? Or are we going to pretend that it isn't happening? Or are we being so eager to push it away or change it that we're in this kind of frantic effort? So for me, that's really where my Buddhist faith intersected with my parents' experience. And there's a Buddhist story which I uh, heard when I was on retreat actually during this whole period of caregiving and traveling to see them frequently and helping them make medical decisions. And that was the story of the second arrow that apparently Buddha said, if someone shoots you in the ankle with an arrow, don't pick up the bow and shoot yourself with a second arrow. And that second arrow is, oh, I wish it were different. Oh, um, maybe I can make it different. You know, oh, I loved it the way it used to be. And I think this applies really strongly as we age because, you know, I use, you know, I swim three times a week now because that's all COVID will allow me because the pool isn't open as much as it used to be. But I, you know, I swim vigorously because I used to hike, but I, my joints are not that good and I can't hike the long, long distances, the seven or eight miles that I used to hike regularly. So there's this thing about adapting Accepting what is, deeply accepting it, being aware of it, and not acting out of an impulse to push it away, but acting as a wise response to the realities we face. You know, Katie, I love how you frame that. And as someone who's worked in mainstream media for years, you probably know firsthand how uh, media is actually not helpful here. We we aren't talking about aging, and oh. and I'm wondering how do you what is what is your perspective on how it treats aging? 
Wow. Well, I, you know, I hate to admit this because I was a much younger reporter, but when I thought about this question, I remembered my own activity as a young reporter, and I was once sent to cover a... It was an afternoon dance party, I think, in the Tenderloin of San Francisco with a lot of aging, a lot of old people live in the Tenderloin or did. And people were really dancing beautifully and they really knew how to dance, which I didn't. And I remember approaching it with so much condescension and almost pity for these people. And it really made no sense at all. I didn't even know how to dance and they may have been in better physical shape than I was, seriously. So I think, you know, these little phrases like, you know, what, nifty and spry and uh, the total surprise that younger journalists will have that older people are living fabulous lives or are healthy or are intelligent. Um, I think we're all affected by these stereotypes of what aging is going to look like or does look like. And it doesn't really inhabit our inner experience. So I think that's one aspect. There's just this kind of condescension. You know, like I said, I just hate that phrase, our seniors. I hate the phrase senior citizen. There's, there's a condescension imbued in these terms. And I prefer just terms like older or old. I mean, I have no objection to somebody calling me old. I am old. I don't particularly like elderly because it sort of sounds fragile and I'm not fragile yet, but there are a lot of fragile elderly, so maybe it's actually very appropriate. I'm I'm big on realism and specificity and take away the ambiguity and take away the euphemism and take away especially the condescension and the sort of the special phrases. Um, so that's sort of one dimension of it. And then the other part of it, I feel, is there is this worship of high technology medicine, which is extremely expensive, but doesn't always improve quality of life. So there's a, an assumption that everybody wants to lengthen life for as long as possible, no matter what the cost, personally or to the society. And the quality of life issues, which are usually about person-to-person type medical care, like, as I said, a speech therapist or a physical therapist or a ride service or go-go grandparent, you know, that these things can really improve people's lives in major ways, but they're, they're modest, they're not glamorous, and it's much more glamorous to write a story about a new test for Alzheimer's that is maybe going to be the thing that turns the corner and leads to a cure. I mean, I've been watching those stories for at least 20 years, and the content doesn't change and the progress doesn't get made. Same with cancer. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I, I want to focus a little bit on, the, on, on your views on ageism because I really uh, agree with you wholeheartedly that we have these stereotypes uh, that seem to come at us at a very early age that we internalize. Uh, and yeah. I'm wondering, you know, there, if you have any views on, you know, these these nascent anti-ageism movements that we're seeing, whether it's magazines that are choosing to change language or how Hollywood has embraced some um, yeah. successful programming for older adults. Could you could you talk about your uh, what you think of that? Well, I, I'm ambivalent about it. I'll tell you the truth. On the one hand, I really 
love. I mean, the reality is baby boomers are an enormous market. And on the whole, I mean, obviously all aging is not monolithic. And there's tremendous range of health status among the old and economic status and comfort status among the old. But there is a segment of the aging population that is an enormous market. So you are seeing and you will see more movies and TV that are segmented toward the fact that older people have real lives and real inner lives and romantic lives and sexual lives and all of it. Um, and I think that's, that's terrific. I think as a society, we are extraordinarily ageist, and I don't know why. You know, that in Greece or in South Africa, where my family is from, that there are certainly societies, uh, a lot of Asian societies, where being old means being the repository of wisdom. And for some reason, America, I think maybe because of our heightened individualism and our technological utopianism, we tend to think, you know, we can lick everything on an individual level and therefore it's someone's personal failure if they're old or they're infirm. I don't know exactly why it is, but we seem to have lost what a lot of traditional societies have, which is both a sense of obligation toward the old and also a reverence for what they have to offer. You know, because clearly, like, you know, you can talk to any grandparent and you, and or being older myself, I just know that I'm a more relaxed person, I'm a friendlier person, I'm a wiser person, I have more to offer my younger friends on that level. Um, but at the same time, I'm not a marathon runner. And when I first face a health problem, I think it's important to be very realistic about the fact that, for example, if I contracted COVID-19, my chance if I got a severe case of survival would be considerably lower than it would be for a healthy 30, 40, even 50-year-old. And that isn't ageism. That's realism. And I think these things get conflated. Does that make sense to you? I'm, that I, makes complete not, sense. No, no, that makes you know? complete sense to me. That makes complete sense to me. And I think we, 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 um, it goes back to your, to your argument earlier about the blank space between denial and, and I guess re reality. Uh, there's this, this, this yeah. space where we cannot uh, accept as a society that we are aging and therefore yeah. all things bad happen to us as we age. It's an, it's an odd uh, logic <laughs> formula. But well, yeah. I wonder... and, yeah. And in a way it's, it's politically disempowering of the old to the, to pretend that everybody is, you know, up for a ni Nobel Prize at 90, you know? You That's see what right. I'm saying? I, you know, I agree not, with you. <clears throat> if you're not honest about the fact that, I, you probably know the statistics more than I do, but that at 85, you're going to have a third or a half of people needing some form of physical or support, or social support of some kind to remain at home, say, you know? to continue to have a high quality of life. If you're not honest about those disabilities and um, declines, you actually disempower the old. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think one of the problems is that as soon as you say old, 
it it is associated with decline or decay as opposed to how the, the reality of it, which is not everyone is at that point. There's to, to your point, aging is not a monolithic experience. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I want to go back to what you said about our uh, about Greece and South Africa and Asian countries. It's fascinating. As yeah. I was thinking about this, uh, I wrote an op-ed about this. My mother is is Greek. And uh, early in the pandemic, oh. um, it struck me that in Greek culture, even colloquially, even even just basic greetings um, yeah. are imbued with language like to your health and you always yeah. respect your elders. You speak to them in the plural. Yeah. And it's such a part yeah. of the culture that yeah. I'm surprised, given that we are such a, you know, a nation of immigrants, that those things didn't last in the immigration experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the media is very powerful. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just thinking like I, I, I actually went to boarding school, okay, and we were taught to stand up when any older person came into the room, and it was all women because it was an all-girls boarding school. But there was that automatic deferral to older people. And now if I, you know, walk on a trail on Mount Tam and a bunch of 17, 19, 20-year-olds are coming to me from the other direction – they won't defer to me or make sure that they've stepped aside on the trail to give me enough space. And now that I'm older, I'm, of course, I'm more worried. My, You know, if I fall on the mountain, I could break a bone in a way that they are not going to break a bone. You know, I run the risk that I might break a bone. And I sometimes want to sort of say to them, like, respect your elders. You know, I'm older. If I fall, fall over, I could break a bone. So step aside That's right. on the trail. That's right. And to be clear, it's not about deferral of one's power or deferring to one's authority because they're older. It is yeah. simply a recognition of one's yes. having lived longer. And that's yes. it. Right. I mean, and I think that's what well, that I think, seems it's, to be I think it's both. I think mm. it's both. It's um, I've lived longer. Uh, there's a there's a there's a point in respecting me or deferring to me. Um, and they'll get old sometime, and hopefully people will also defer to them. But there's also the reality. If I fall, it could be a more – and, I, you know, I'm not a fragile elder at this point. I'm 71. But by 81, I will be a fragile elder, and I want to still be able to go out on the mountain and walk and feel safe. So there's that realism aspect as well. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And And I want to sort of get your views on – uh, how our membership, you know, the American Society on Aging is made up of professionals who are in the aging services sector. And so often they are dealing with the most vulnerable. Um, yeah. What advice would you give either um, uh, as they're serving the most vulnerable uh, older adults or or aren't and they're just sort of working with older adults in, in day to day? What, what, what would you say about how they should approach uh, these uh, this ageism that we that we face. Wow, I, I just want to say first how absolutely grateful I am to everybody working in the aging sector. There were two um, non you know non professional in sense of non licensed caregivers who helped my mother through the last six and a half years of my dad's life. People who came in and gave my dad a shower, 
um, became really, uh, in some ways, an integral part of our family, surrogate sisters to me, who made such an enormous difference to my parents' quality of life during that very difficult time. My father's uh, personal physician, the internal medicine guy, who was not technically a geriatrician, but was just the only really wise person in the constellation of my father's, you know, specialists and subspecialists who were all, you know, intent on monitoring and scanning and giving my father a pacemaker and really knowing nothing about the quality of her family. So I just want to really give a shout out to all the geriatricians and social workers and everybody who's doing so much to improve the quality of life of people in that last third of life when we need more help. I'm not sure I'm really, I feel what you're asking me is above my pay grade, that I'm talking to people who are actually, (laughs) really honestly, far more knowledgeable and informed than I am. You know, I am a journalist who spent over 10 years um, concentrating and researching and interviewing people who know more than me and having the experience of a family caregiver. Um, But yeah, it's above my pay grade. I'm not going to answer it. Well, (laughs) I'll I'll help you. I'll help you. Okay, go ahead. You tell me. I think, yeah, I I just think that, you know, sometimes even those who are in the profession um, and folks who have dedicated their entire lives to this space um, come with their own um, stereotypes um, and come with their own um, views of aging that may not necessarily be helpful to the process. So I suspect uh-huh. it, it's time. I think the pandemic has forced us to reevaluate some of our approaches. Um, and this uh-huh. goes to not just to ageism. Well, it doesn't just go to ageism. It, it also goes to um, uh, the the inequities that exist in healthcare, right? Sort of yeah. the, the the racial inequities and the likelihood yeah. of someone of color receiving treatment versus not, right? And yeah. uh, so I suspect our listeners and our members are now made more aware of these things. And really, um, you know, in many community-based organizations, people use the language that you described, like, our seniors are patronizing. They can be, it can be condescending. And I think as a generation, you know, I'm not too fond of generational warfare, but as a generation, the boomers have absolutely challenged these notions, which is helpful. Uh, But um, they're also at at the same time undermining it, particularly when you have, you know, two presidential candidates who are weaponizing aging against one another right now. So um, Uh it's, so, so that, so that would be my answer to my own question about yeah. how the services. Yeah, well, can I, help. I truly just hate that language. Uh, I just say, call it what it is. We're old, you know. We're old. We're bold. Get used to it, you know. <laughs> That's my <laughs> about it. Um, but I want to address a couple questions, which I think are they're almost taboo to raise in the aging professional aging community, and one of these is the question of quality of life versus length of life. And the other is the word medical care versus medical treatment. And and this is where I think I may be challenging you a little bit, um, which is that giving people maximum treatment is not always the same as giving them maximum care. Um, So, 
For example, I have a friend who is in his 90s. His name is Stuart Brand. He founded the Whole Earth Catalog. And when COVID hit, he and his wife created a new advanced directive for themselves that said very clearly, we want you to do everything up to supplementary oxygen. But if I have a collapse and I'm headed for intubation intensive care, I do not want that. And to regard the ageism questions around inequities in treatment as simply a matter of, are you getting maximum treatment? Maximum treatment may not actually be what that person wants, you know? And that's that difference between quality of life and, and length of life. I mean, in the early days of COVID, I, you know, nine, I mean, it was, the statistics were horrifying. You know, nine out of 10 people who were ending up on ventilators with this kind of, uh, cytokine storm were dying in intensive care. And that without being allowed to see their relatives in any way, maybe through an iPad, this was causing immense moral distress among healthcare workers. All of, almost all these people were also getting uh, CPR at the end of life that was futile and very risky for the healthcare workers. And it's almost like the ageism argument can be weaponized in the other direction and say, oh, if you're not putting someone into intensive care, that's because of ageism. And I don't think it always is. It could be that that person has extremely little chance of surviving and didn't want to die that way. And if they were were going to die, they would prefer to die in the nursing home that had become their home, for example. And that we have to open up this conversation and not make it taboo to discuss. You know, I think Amer- American medicine throws a lot of treatment at people that may often be helpful, but sometimes really isn't and goes against their values and what their goals of care are. Um, and it is really stingy and, you know, frugal about what I would call care, which is these one-to-one relationships, this help with making medical decisions, um, support for a high quality of life, and support for a high quality of death. You know, I, I really like how you frame that. It, it brings up another issue that came out during COVID, and that's around the rationing of care. Uh, yeah. And basically, who who gets to decide whether one gets to live and die, putting it simply. Yeah. But really more complicated is when you're faced with a limited uh, supply of resources, how are medical professionals yeah. meant, right, to to administer yeah. different treatments or not? Um, what's your what's your take on 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 that debate? It's actually a very difficult conversation, uh-huh. but it's a very difficult conversation. And, and in some ways, I just don't know. And every time I talk to somebody who has a different opinion on it, I go, wow, that makes sense. And, you know, one way of looking at this, one school of thought is let's be honest about someone's chances of surviving an intensive care stay or a ventilator stay, for example. Let's be honest about what that's going to look like on the other side if you've spent three weeks on a ventilator and you are let's say, in your 80s with multiple chronic conditions. Let's be really honest and clear-eyed about what that future is likely to look like and have very honest conversations with people so they make their own choices. And yes, 
some people will opt for essentially futile care, and we should allow that, right? And then the other, and that argument makes sense to me. And then, you know, there's a difference between realism and aging, ageism, right? There's appropriate medical care for various stages of life and, and various health stages, and they aren't always, they don't always line up. You can have a very unhealthy um, uh, 40-year-old and an extremely healthy 85-year-old. But let's face it, there's also kind of a bell curve, right, um, where people are going to fall. And then the other point of view is, like, I know some older people, people of my age and older, who would say, look, if a 40-year-old with two kids who has a good chance of surviving an ICU stay is up for a ventilator and I'm standing in their way because I'm saying ageism, 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 um, I would rather that ventilator go to someone who has another 40, 50 years of life possible to live and children to both support and to love than me when I've had a very good life and I am close to the end of my life no matter what happens, whether COVID or not, I'm maybe going to survive another 10 or 15 years, right? You know, it's so, interesting, Katie, you're talking about agency, aren't you? You're talking about the ability to make the decision. Um, and that that yeah. power rests in the individual who's confronted with it. I think so much of the yeah. debate also is around others making the decision for people, for right? Yeah. And I think that's where it gets a little tricky. I mean, I love how you but, you, you talk yeah, about it. Yeah, but you're also you're also you know unconsciously or not, you're also referring to this American uh, elevation of individualism and individual choice. And in many situations, we can afford it, right? But right. there also may be situations where there really is a limited resource and there's a surge going on in a community and somebody else will make that choice. And, you know, is that wonderful? No. But I do think we also have to... Uh, empower people sometimes to do things for the greater good, even though an individual may not be happy with that choice. You know, hopefully in the vast majority of cases, we're not going to come to that kind of choice. But there there were times in New York City, there were times in New Orleans, uh, there were times during surges where not everybody could get a ventilator. And Considering that nine out of ten people who were getting ventilators were dying anyway, we really have to be honest about what we're facing. You know, I, I, I told you I was going to say some things that you were not going to like and that maybe the audience was going to find unpopular. I actually think the audience is going to love this conversation, Katie, because <laughs> it's an honest conversation. And I want to thank you yeah. very much for joining us on bylines. I want to um, just remind the audience that Katie Butler, uh, who we've had a very honest conversation with, is the author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, and The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. And Katie, thank you so much for joining us on bylines today. Thank you very much, Peter. I have really enjoyed it. And I apologize to anyone who's toes I have stepped on in the course of the conversation. 
<laughs> you don't need to apologize <laughs> for expressing your point of view, Katie. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you.